Hey guys, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. And today we are doing, I always say we, I am doing The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which I have put off for about a year because I know it's one of the most read books in high school and I really just did not want to read it. So I didn't for a really long time. And I finally read it, and I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. I actually really enjoyed it, and obviously it's a classic for a reason. I guess I just didn't believe anyone. In this episode, I go over context and a little bit about the author, as well as major characters, and we go through chapters 1 through 10. Here's context and overview. So, Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, published in 1850. It is considered historical fiction, and the full title is technically The Scarlet Letter, A Romance, and not a romance in the sense that there is a romantic relationship in this book. Don't get your hopes up. There's very, very little of that, but romantic in the terms of like, there's fantastical qualities, supernatural realities, things like that that come into play. I mean, it's Puritan society, so basically they believed in witches and all, like, devils and elves and demons and all that stuff, so super fun. It was one of the first mass-produced books in America, obviously considered a classic masterpiece. The introduction is a novel of sin and its consequences. A little background on Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1804. He changed the spelling of his last name from H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E to add the W, possibly because his ancestor was a judge in the Salem Witch Trials and he did not want to be associated with that. So the story is set in Puritan, Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1640s. The main character is Hester Prynne. She has a child out of wedlock through an affair with a man who is unknown for most of the book. She is married but her husband is believed to be lost at sea. So basically he is way older than her, snatched her up, married her, was like, you go to the new world in America, get things settled for us. I've got to work out some things here and then I'll meet you there. But she's been in America now for two years alone and he is nowhere to be found and could possibly be dead. She doesn't know because she hasn't heard from him. And she has an affair with someone, gets pregnant, has a baby, And obviously can't hide that fact that she's pregnant. So she gets publicly shamed for it. Has to wear a scarlet letter. You guys all know the story. So major characters are Hester Prynne. Like I just said. She's the baby mama. She's beautiful. She's dignified in the beginning. She goes through a lot of stuff. Still remains dignified. Loses a little bit of her outward beauty. Because she becomes so like internally sad and guilt ridden. So the next character is Roger Chillingworth, which is not his real name, but we never actually learn his real name. He is Hester's husband. Roger Chillingworth is his fake name, so his real last name has to be Prynne. But he shows up right around the time when Hester is being publicly shamed for her sins. And he vows to her that he will find the father of her child and punish him. In order to stay in this society under a false name, he also says that he's a physician, which he's not. He's like a very learned man, but he's not technically a doctor. At one point, he was like a kind 
man, and then he turns pretty dark throughout the novel. The next character is Arthur Dimsdale. He's a very young minister. He is like well-loved in the community. He's kind of hot, so all the girls love him. They all hope that he's going to ask them to marry him, and he gives very powerful sermons throughout the novel. He becomes like weaker and weaker through an illness that is unknown. Anyway, that's Arthur Dimsdale. And then the last character I'm going to talk about is Pearl. She is the baby. Obviously, she's very secluded because of her mother's shame. Other kids won't play with her, but she's very wild and imaginative. She's disruptive. She breaks the rules. She's assertive and strong. People don't like that. They think she's like a devil baby. (laughs) Throughout most of the novel, they think she's an elf, like a changeling, which we'll get into that. Anyway, those are the characters. So themes... I'm just going to quickly tell you what they are. We're not going to go over them yet, but there's the theme, obviously, of shame and guilt, social stigmas, female independence, and the nature of evil and sin. Those are the themes to look out for. Now I'm going to get into the chapters, but first there's the introduction, which is called Introductory, the Custom House, and basically it's like a explanation of how this story of Hester Prynne was found and published. So the whole book is narrated by a nameless man. He has spent three years working at Salem Custom House, but as of six months ago, he no longer works there. It's important to note that the narrator shares a lot of the same traits as the actual author, Nathaniel Hawthorne, but the narrator says that this introduction is to show his place in all of this. He's just an editor of a manuscript that he found when he worked at this custom house which customs are import taxes. So it's just like where boats come into the harbor and pay their taxes. So this particular custom house is very old. It's located on the docks in Salem, Massachusetts. There's not very many ships that come there anymore, but it's used, it used to be a really busy wharf. The narrator paints a picture of what it used to be like and what it is like now. Basically now it's very slow. His coworkers are old and bored and he's bored most of the time. So one day his boredom causes him to explore the second story of his office building. And this is where he finds a manuscript wrapped in cloth. And then he finds a letter A in like this extravagant fabric that's embroidered with gold and all that. It says on page 32, it had been intended there could be no doubt as an ornamental article of dress, but how it was to be worn or what rank, honor, and dignity in by past times were signified by it was a riddle which I saw little help of solving. So basically he's saying it's beautiful. Obviously someone who is like very highly ranked, dignified would wear this A, but he doesn't know what it means. He picks it up and holds it to his chest. And when he does, it burns him and he drops it. He reads the manuscript. It was written by a man named Jonathan Pugh, who held his same position at a customs house a hundred years earlier. Pew wrote the account about events that took place a hundred years before his time. So this is 200 years before the current narrator lived. Okay, so the manuscript seems to follow the life of Hester Prynne, a woman who seemed noteworthy and kind, always helping people as a nurse and a confidant. 
counselor. As he reads on, he finds out what happened to her, and it's not pretty, (laughs) we know. Our narrator has reservations about becoming a writer because his Puritan ancestors would see it as undesirable, but he decides to write it anyway. He feels drawn in by this story, and he can't think of anything else. So he writes a fiction based on the events that Jonathan Pugh wrote about, specifically Hester Prynne. He eventually loses his job at the customs house, and so he sits in front of the fire in his home, and he writes his romance, The Scarlet Letter. Chapter one is called The Prison Door. The story opens with people gathered around a prison in a small settlement. And remember, this is like the 1640s. The narrator tells us that this settlement was started 15 to 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years before the story opens. On page 45, it says that founders of new colonies can be optimistic, but they will still designate a portion of the virgin soil as a cemetery and another portion as the site of a prison. Obviously, there's going to be people who commit crimes and there's going to be people who die, so they have to plot land for those things. So the prison is already pretty worn down and the surrounding area is pretty sad looking, except for a wild rose bush full of bloomed roses because at the time it's June. People don't know how this rose bush survives, but it blooms every single year on its own. And there's a theory It sprung up under the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson as she entered the prison door. Anne Hutchinson was a Puritan spiritual advisor in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. She had very strong religious views that got her into trouble with her clergymen, but she was really popular and her beliefs threatened the Puritan religious community. So she was tried and convicted, banished, along with all of her supporters. So basically he's saying that happened and she was so great and so this rose bush sprung out of nowhere and blooms by itself and the narrator symbolically gives the reader one of the roses in hopes he says that it will symbolize hope and relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow chapter two the marketplace so crowd is gathered around the prison waiting for something the narrator tells us that during this period of time It could have been a number of things. It could have been a naughty child going out to be publicly beaten. It could have been an Indian, a supposed witch, a person who like drank publicly or something. It's Puritan society. So basically everything that you do is wrong. But the narrator focuses on the women in the crowd because they seem particularly interested in what's about to happen. The women of this time were of old English birth. He describes them as coarse and bold And one woman, who's about 50 years old, suggests that they, as women, should be in charge of punishing the person who's about to come out. She calls her a malefactress. So it's a woman who violates the law or does evil. And she says the name of the woman is Hester Prynne. She calls her a hussy. And she calls her a naughty baggage, which back then meant a prostitute or a disreputable woman. So... Not being very nice, but she says that the magistrates in charge of of Hester's sentencing are being far too merciful. It says on page 48, at the very least, they should have put the brand of a hot iron on Hester Prynne's forehead because in their mind, she could easily cover up the cloth A that she is being forced to wear on her clothing. A softer, nicer woman replies that even if she covers it up, Hester will still have to live with the guilt in her heart. And another woman, who the narrator describes as the ugliest woman, says that Hester has brought shame on them all and should die for what she did. A man in the crowd near them shushes them because Hester Prynne is coming out of the prison doors. The prison guard attempts to lead her out of the doors, 
but she pulls away and walks on her own because she is very dignified and she wants to do this on her own. She's holding a three-month baby in her arms. When the baby gets out into the sun, winces because it's lived its whole life in a dungeon so far. Hester's initial reaction when she walks outside is to cover the A on her chest, but she stops herself. Okay, so basically what we just learned is that she committed adultery, bore a child with a man other than her husband, and now she has to wear a scarlet A on her chest. So she doesn't cover up the A. She allows the townspeople to see her child and the A, and she gives the crowd a haughty smile because she's disdainfully proud, so she's trying to prove that she is not ashamed. Okay, the A on her chest is extravagantly made. It's very elaborate. It's fantastic and artistic. That's how they describe it. And later you find out that she's a very good seamstress. So she made herself a very fancy dress and a very fancy scarlet A to kind of be like stick it to the man type thing. She is described as tall and he calls her a figure of perfect elegance. She has dark hair and a beautiful face and she has deep dark eyes. She's very ladylike, but in a dignified way, not in like a delicate type of way. The narrator says she also has an indescribable grace. Those who knew her expected her beauty, dignity, and grace severely lessened after her disgrace, but they're shocked to see that her beauty is still shining, even though she is being like dishonored and shamed. So she's not giving them the satisfaction (laughs) of shaming her. The attention of the crowd is on the A on her chest, which I said is extravagantly embroidered. One of the women in the crowd points to her amazing needlework skills and on 51 says, but did ever a woman before this brazen hussy contrive such a way of showing it? So they're pissed that she seems to have made a pride out of what was meant to be a punishment. And one woman suggests that they take her beautiful dress from her and replace her embroidered A with just a plain A. So the prison guard clears the crowd, leads Hester to the center of the town square where everyone can see her. And her sentence is to stand on this scaffold for three hours and wear the A for the remainder of her life. So she stands on the scaffold. She's taller, like almost a full body taller than the rest of the crowd so that they can all see her. The crowd is somber and sort of in awe of her as they stare at her, just like literally staring at her and not stopping. Hester Prynne found herself wishing that the crowd was more cruel or loud because the silence was harder for her to bear. And as she stands there, she finds herself going back in her mind to earlier memories and her life sort of flashes before her eyes going back through her childhood and up through the present. It's as if her mind is trying to relieve the pain of her current reality by imagining or dreaming about her past life. On page 54, it says, It was an instinctive device of her spirit to relieve itself from the cruel weight and hardness of the reality. So her memory takes her through her childhood. She sees her parents. She sees the older man that she marries and travels from Europe to Boston for, and he has yet to follow her here. And then she's brought back to reality by the yells of the crowd, and she's kind of startled, like, oh, crap, I forgot I was here (laughs) standing on a scaffold while everyone watched me. Hester is in disbelief that this is where her life has gone. Okay, chapter three is called The Recognition. As Hester observes the crowd, she notices a Native American man accompanied by a white man who is small and thin but looks very intelligent. And she notices that though he was trying very hard to hide it, one of his shoulders is higher than the other. So he kind of is like a little crooked. 
And she realizes that this man is her husband who had promised to meet her in America, but hadn't. The man sees Hester, but like barely glances at her. On 56, it says carelessly, like a man chiefly accustomed to look inward and to whom external matters are of little value unless they bear relation to something within his mind. So he's doesn't even really look at her. He doesn't care because he's focused on other things. But he soon realizes that it's his wife, Hester, up there holding a child that's obviously not his, and he's horrified. But he hides his anger and his surprise, and he asks the man next to him who this woman is and what she did. The man looks at Hester's husband and is super shocked by his appearance because he's dressed half European, half Indian which we learned that he's been living with Native Americans. And today they finally agreed to release him, so they took him to the nearest town, which happened to be this one. The man he asked about Hester tells him that she's done evil and caused a great scandal. He tells Hester's husband that he should be happy after being held captive to be in a community that seeks out and punishes sinners. So one thing about Puritan society is that they believe in not only punishing sinners, but like seeking out sinners. Instead of letting people decide on their own to confess their sins, it's like, no, no, no. We're going to like neighbors and friends tattle on each other. So he's like, you should be proud to be in a community that does this sort of thing. And he tells him that Hester was married to an Englishman and they were traveling in Amsterdam when he sent his wife to America, but he stayed behind to handle his affairs with the promise of meeting her in America. He says she's been in America for two years with no husband. And on 57, it says, and this man's young wife being left to her own misguidance, dot, dot, dot. Anyway. So Hester's husband asks who the father of the baby is, but the man says no one knows because Hester refuses to say. He says that because Hester is likely to have been strongly tempted by the man who impregnated her and the fact that her husband could very well be dead at the bottom of the ocean, they didn't feel it necessary to punish her to the fullest extent of the law, which in Puritan society, adultery was punishable by death. Her punishment, therefore, is to stand on the scaffold for three hours and then wear the scarlet A for the rest of her life. Hester's husband approves of this punishment. He says on 58, she will be a living sermon against sin until the letter be engraved upon her tombstone. So he's super mad that the man who had an affair with his wife is not also being punished. And as he walks away, he says over and over again to himself, he will be known, he will be known. Meanwhile, Hester has not stopped staring at her husband but she comes back to reality when she hears someone loudly saying, Hearken unto me, Hester Prynne. So a group of men, including the governor, his name is Governor Bellingham, were sitting on a balcony above the crowd and Hester trembles when she sees them. Okay, the narrator describes them as just and good men, but he says that they are ill-equipped to handle this sort of situation. He says this is especially true of Governor Bellingham and John Wilson, who is the eldest clergyman of Boston. These men are both by-the-book men, they're incapable of judging individual circumstances, and they live by a strict overarching law. The narrator obviously doesn't like these guys, says they're hypocritical, ignorant, and have no right to be questioning someone else's guilt, passion, and anguish. That's on page 60. So John Wilson, the clergyman, speaks first. He addresses another clergyman beside him, who we have talked about in the main characters, which is Reverend Dimsdale. He's younger, and he's been in this town for a few years. They want Hester to confess who the father of the child is, 
and John Wilson thinks that Dimsdale will be the best man to coax the truth out of her because he knows her better than the other men there. The governor tells Dimsdale it's his responsibility to get a confession out of her, and the crowd focuses their attention on him. The narrator describes him as young, eloquent, apprehensive, and commonly nervous or frightened. So, Dimsdale addresses Hester. He tells her she must confess in order to fully repent and be saved. He says that the man who sinned with her is to not be protected. He says it would be better for him to stand in sin with her, this is on page 62, than to hide a guilty heart through life. And if this man is not brought to justice, he says he will just sin again and again and won't learn his lesson. And then he says, take heed how thou deniest him who perchance hath not the courage to grasp it for himself, the bitter but wholesome cup that is now presented to thy lips. Which is so funny to me. Hawthorne addresses this a little bit, but obviously men can get away with this because they don't actually have to bear the consequences of getting a woman pregnant. They can just walk away and pretend it never happened because Hester is physically incapable of hiding the fact that she is pregnant. But a man can just walk away no one ever has to know, especially when it's Hester and she's like being kind because she actually loved this man and doesn't want to say who it was. But his words, back to Dimsdale, his words struck the crowd very powerfully, so powerfully that they knew that Hester would confess the name of the guilty man or that the guilty man would come forward on his own because how could they resist it after such an amazing speech? But Hester shook her head. Reverend Wilson is pissed. <laughs> He yells at her to say the name, reminding her that she won't have to wear the A anymore if she does. But Hester Prince says she will never say, as she looks deep into Dimsdale's eyes. It says on 62, The scarlet A is too deeply branded, ye cannot take it off, and would that I might endure his agony as well as mine. So she's like, no, no, I love this man, I'm not telling you who he is, and I'm just going to take it all on my own. From the crowd, a man yells, speak, and Hester knows it's her husband. He tells her to speak so that the child will have a father. She grows weak and pale, but she says she won't, that the child will seek a heavenly father, but will never know an earthly father. Dimsdale silences the crowd and says, wondrous strength and generosity of a woman's heart, she will not speak. So they give up. John Wilson takes over, gives a sermon about sin, focusing on the scarlet letter until the townspeople are so, so terrified of it all that they liken it to hell and after an hour or more of his ramblings hester is led back to the prison her sentence is over and on 63 it says it was whispered by those who peered after her that the scarlet letter threw a lurid gleam along the passageway of the interior so like it's glowing basically is what they're saying chapter four the interview hester returns to her prison cell and she is restless, and it says, in a state of nervous excitement. The guards are on constant watch to make sure she doesn't hurt herself or her baby, but the baby seems to have drank Hester's anguish and despair from her breast milk, and the baby is inconsolable. So the man from the crowd, Hester's husband, comes into the jail cell, says he's a doctor, and that he's there to like help her and the baby. He said his name is Roger Chillingworth, which we know is the fake name that Hester's husband takes. And he promises to subdue Hester and the baby and make Hester more amenable. Basically like, don't worry, I'll make her say. He tells Hester that he studied alchemy and that he knows more than most actual doctors. So he's going to be a physician now. 
and he gives her some medicine to give to the baby. And Hester obviously hesitates and asks if it was poison. She's like, would you poison a baby for revenge? And he assures her that he wouldn't do that, that the medicine will help, but she still wouldn't do it. So Chillingworth gave the medicine to the baby himself and... The baby calms down after that. He then offers Hester medicine. She asks again if it's poison and he tells her that his revenge is not to kill her. He touches the Scarlet A and when he does, it burns Hester's chest. He sits next to her and he tells her that he knows an old, ugly man like him didn't deserve to marry a young, beautiful woman like Hester, but he didn't expect that she'd cheat on him. And Hester reminds him that she told him from the beginning she felt no love for him. And he knows this, he admits it, but he tells her that he kept her in his heart and she filled him up. Hester says she feels really terrible. She's like, I have greatly wronged thee. And he says he also wronged her by forcing her into an unnatural marriage with him. And he promises, he's like, I seek no revenge on you, but I have to know the man who you slept with. And Hester tells him, He's like, she's like, you'll never know. He laughs and he says on 68, Hester, there are few things hidden from the man who devotes himself earnestly and unreservedly to the solution of a mystery. And he promises that he will find him. The man's sympathy towards you will give him away. And he gazed so intently into Hester's eyes that she was afraid he'd read the secret through her eyes. And he asks her to keep his secret too. He's like, don't tell anyone I'm your husband. Don't tell anyone my true identity. And she promises that she won't. She asks why he doesn't want anyone to know. And he says then it would just cause more shame to her and also shame to himself for having an unfaithful wife. So they both promise to keep the secret, not to tell anyone that he's actually her husband. And he grins super creepy at her. And she asks if he's the black man which the black man in this book is the devil, basically. And so she asks if he's the black man disguised to bring her ruin. And he says, not thy soul. So he's not concerned about Hester. He just wants to know who the baby daddy is and destroy his life, basically. Chapter five, Hester at her needle. Hester's released from prison. She finds leaving prison to be harder than when she was paraded in front of the town for punishment. It says on page 70, then she was supported by an unnatural tension of the nerves and by all the combative energy of her character, which enabled her to convert the scene into a kind of lurid triumph. But now she's alone, her future's unknown, and she's afraid. She thinks about her future and how now she will be known and used as a symbol for shame and sin and women's frailty. And that makes her upset. She thinks about how young girls will be taught to look at her as the figure and the reality of sin. So shockingly, she decides to stay in the settlement when she could move literally anywhere else in the world and no one would know and she wouldn't have to wear the A. But she decides to stay because two things tie her to this town. Number one, the baby daddy. She loves him. She doesn't want to leave him even though he can't be in her life. She just loves him and she wants to be near him. Also, she won't admit this to herself, but he is what keeps her there, and she feels that they're bound together in this life and the next, and imagines that they'll be joined in marriage in the next life, or hopes that they will be. And her other reason for saying is that the town, on page 72, it says the town had been the scene of her guilt, and here should be the scene of her earthly punishment. 
of course, in hopes that living with her guilt and shame her entire life will allow God to grant her forgiveness and she'll be pure again and be able to go to heaven. So she moves into a cottage on the outskirts of town by the seashore. She's away from other houses, but still close enough to town. Children in the town who are not old enough to understand what Hester had done found it curious that she would be living in the woods. They would sneak onto her porch and watch her sewing and run away whenever they saw the A on her chest. So she's alienated and lonely, but she's a master needleworker, and this is how she supports herself and her child. So Puritans are very modest, and they wear plain clothing, but some occasions afforded the need for something fancier, and they all went to Hester for this. Even though she was a sinner, they all wanted her handiwork. So she sewed a variety of fancy and ornate things, including burial clothes, baby linens, christening gowns, robes worn by officials, public ceremonies, stuff, all that. The governor wore her clothing, men in the military, the minister, everything except for weddings. It was acceptable to wear or buy garments made by Hester's sinful hands except for wedding clothes because it's inappropriate for brides to wear her clothing because if they do, they'll probably cheat on their husbands. So, Hester herself wore plain clothing her whole life, like gray robes, except for the very fancy A on her chest. But she dressed her daughter in very distinguished fancy clothing. And when she isn't sewing, she does charity for people. Even though they're rude to her, even though they insult her, she still makes clothing for the poor out of cheap, coarse fabrics, which she hated doing because it's not fun to make things that are ugly. But she makes them clothes, she brings them food, she does all of this charity work, even though the poor people insult her. And she's extremely lonely. She feels her banishment every day. She feels the disdain that other women feel for her when she enters their home to do work. But she never responds to their subtle attacks or jabs at her. She's very patient, but she feels sad and she feels disheartened. She is often stopped in the street by a minister who chastises her and brings a crowd. And if she tries to go to church, the preacher will give a sermon about her. She thinks about her scarlet letter, realizes that it may have given her a sympathetic knowledge of the hidden sin in our hearts. And she wonders how many people in her town are secret sinners. On 77, it says she wonders if the outward guise of purity was but a lie and that if truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on many a bosom besides her own, which is very true. And she could feel the scarlet letter like throb sometimes. And she wondered if that was her clue as to another sinner nearby. But sometimes she would feel it look up and see a minister. And how could that be? How can a minister be a sinner? But even so, Hester believed that no human was as guilty as herself. So she's just basically punishing herself. Okay, chapter six is called Pearl. In this chapter, we learn about Hester's daughter, whose name is Pearl. She named her Pearl not because she was calm or pure, but because she was of a great price, purchased with all she had. So she gave everything she had. So Hester knew that Pearl was brought into this world through sin. She was afraid of that. She thought that something would be wrong with Pearl because of it. Every day, Hester looked at her child for signs of darkness But Pearl seemed perfect on the outside. She was very beautiful and graceful, and her mother dressed her in very expensive fabrics. And it says on page 80, 
Such was the splendor of Pearl's own proper beauty shining through the gorgeous robes which might have extinguished a paler loveliness. But Pearl is not neat or calm. She dirties the beautiful clothing her mom makes her, but this only made her more perfect. The narrator tells us that she was not like other children. He says that in this one child, there were many children. She's very wild and passionate and deep, just like her mother. It says Pearl was not a rule follower and could not be forced to do anything she didn't want to do. On page 80, it says, In giving her existence, a great law had been broken, and the result was a being whose elements were perhaps beautiful and brilliant, but all in disorder, or with an order peculiar to themselves, amidst which the point of variety and arrangement was difficult or impossible to discover. So that's a Hawthorne way of saying she was born out of sin, and therefore she might be beautiful and brilliant, but she's also wild and crazy and a little bit dark. Hester believes that Pearl absorbed her sin and the effects of it during her pregnancy. She recognizes all of Pearl's moods as the ones in herself. And she tried to be strict with her at first, but soon realized that that didn't work. So she basically let her do her own thing. But sometimes Pearl would get this look in her eye. And remember, she's only three at this point. But on 81, it says, it was a look so intelligent, yet inexplicable, so perverse, sometimes so malicious, but generally accompanied by a wild flow of spirits that Hester could not help questioning at such a moment whether Pearl was a human child. So this is where we start getting into like the fantasy of things. Most people believe that Pearl is a demon child or an elf. It says that when Pearl would get like this, she was... She would become distant. She seemed intangible. And Hester would pick her up and kiss her as if to convince herself that Pearl really was a real child and not a spirit. And basically the only time Hester feels calm is when Pearl is asleep. Pearl gets to the age where she should start playing with friends, but of course none of the kids in town will play with her. The narrator says on 82, Pearl was born an outcast of the infantile world. An imp of evil, emblem, and product of sin. She had no right among christened infants. And this might be the saddest line in the book so far. It says on 82, Nothing was more remarkable than the instinct with which the child comprehended her loneliness. So she knows she's alone. She's sad about it. And obviously she's been subjected to her mother's shame and guilt her entire life. Because anytime Hester's in public, Pearl is there with her. So anytime she's insulted or gawked at, Pearl is there and she watches as the other children played without her. Sometimes they would mock her and surround her to tease her. And in response, she would throw stones at them and yell at them incoherently, which scared Hester because it sounded like a witch's curse. But again, she's three. Hester sees herself in Pearl in a lot of ways, the good and the bad and the evil, and it scares her. Another peculiarity of Pearl is her obsession with the scarlet letter on her mom's chest. The A is the first thing she saw when she was born, not her mother's face, the A. In her early days, she would grab the A and Hester would panic and tear it away. Every time Pearl gazes at the scarlet letter, she looks at her mom with the same peculiar smile and odd expression in her eyes which scares Hester. It seems she's a little bit paranoid, obviously, and she seems a little too afraid of her child, but the narrator describes the look in Pearl's eye as, as elfish, and this is not, I'm not talking about elves in like the Santa Claus type of way, but the origin of elves. So 
a long time ago, it was believed that elves lived in the mountains. They had magical powers. They were very mischievous. A lot of times they're called changelings. And there's tales of changelings, which are, and this is not in the book. This is just me going off on a tangent about elves, but changelings were elves. So they came to steal your children and take them back to their mountain places. But in exchange, they would replace the child with an elf who was a little temperamental, cried all the time, misbehaved, all that kind of stuff. And they would call it a changeling, which is what people would say when all of the sudden someone in their life would change behaviors drastically or their baby was inconsolable. It was like, oh, probably a changeling. So this is kind of what Hawthorne is playing off right now. Not Santa's elves, but this kind of elf. So many times when Hester looked into Pearl's eyes, she thought she saw an evil spirit there who was possessing her child. So she's basically extremely paranoid, thinks that Pearl is a demon child. So Back to Pearl's obsession with the scarlet letter. One day when she was a toddler, she was running around throwing flowers at the A on her mom's chest. She was dancing like a little elf. And whenever she hit the letter, she would like celebrate. And Hester sat and watched her child sadly. And she asked her, child, what art thou? And Pearl said, I am your little Pearl. And Hester asks again where she came from and who sent her. And Pearl is three and obviously doesn't know, so she says, Mom, tell me who sent me to you. Hester hesitates, but then she says, Heavenly Father sent you. And Pearl noticed the hesitation, or maybe she really is a demon child. I don't know. Or she's just three. She says, I have no Heavenly Father. Hester tells her to be quiet. She says she does have a Heavenly Father, that he sent everyone to earth. And Hester remembers hearing the townspeople talk about how Pearl was a demon offspring, that Satan himself came to earth and disguised himself and impregnated Hester and Pearl was his child. Something at least like that. I don't know. The language that Hawthorne uses is weird sometimes, but that's like the gist of what he's being said. Maybe Pearl is Satan's child. So before we move on, I want to point out that Pearl is not a demon child and this story is not going to turn into some like fantasy with like Hades coming to earth or anything, but Hawthorne is using this concern that Hester has for her child being inhuman to show just how human they really are. It's it's all paranoia. It's like the Salem witch trials. Like, a woman is not obeying your laws. Oh, she's a witch, right? Like, everyone, a woman exists and she's a witch. So this is kind of just Puritan paranoia. Chapter 7, The Governor's Hall. Hester goes to the governor's mansion to deliver some gloves that she made for him and also to talk to him about some rumors that have been circulating that Pearl could be taken away from her. Obviously, there's talk that Pearl is in fact a demon child and if she is a demon child, Hester shouldn't have to deal with that so they're going to take her away in order to protect Hester. But if Pearl is not a demon child, she should be taken away from Hester and given to a family that is better suited to care for her and give her salvation and church, which Hester obviously can't do. So you may be thinking to yourself, how in the world is an entire town believing it's possible for a child to be literally a demon? But let's not forget that this book was set 50 years before the Salem Witch Trials. So again, Puritan paranoia, they believe literally anything. Basically, they'll believe anything when they're afraid. When something is out of the ordinary, when something's different or odd, it's like, oh, it's a demon, it's a witch, it's an elf, it's not earthly and therefore should be punished. They believed in demons and devils and evil spirits, elves, witches, 
and they believed that they lived among them and could cause them harm and they would blame lots of unexplained things on these demon things like disease or livestock dying again like changelings they performed exorcisms they believed in witchcraft and possession of the devil again they believed in actively seeking out evil sources getting rid of them actively seeking out sinners punishing them this belief system is how a matter of a child being taken away from her mother could reach the legislative level so back to the story Hester and Pearl are on their way to the governor's house and on this particular day Hester dressed Pearl in a beautiful dress of crimson velvet and it says that the dress was the scarlet letter in another form so basically she (laughs) turned Pearl into the personification of the scarlet A. Hester did this on purpose because she's amazing obviously And it says on 89, she had spent hours of morbid ingenuity to create an analogy between the object of her affection and the emblem of her guilt and torture. So Pearl can be interpreted as both the object of her affection and the emblem of her guilt. And she wears it perfectly. So they get to the governor's house. It's super lavish, brilliantly decorated. Um, The narrator says that it could be Aladdin's palace. And Hester knocks, a servant answers, He sees the A on her chest, and he is new to the community. So the A, he sees it and assumes that she's of some importance, and he lets her in the house even though the governor's in a meeting with the two ministers and a doctor. And the word he uses for doctor, by the way, is leech, which I didn't know the meaning of, but that apparently used to be the meaning of a doctor. So inside the house, Pearl becomes interested in a suit of armor. She realizes that she can see herself in the breastplate like a mirror, and she tells her mom to look. And when Hester looks in, she sees a distorted vision of herself because obviously it's like warped, but the scarlet letter is like very exaggerated and gigantic, and it's like the one thing you can see on her, and she freaks out. Anyway, Hester takes Pearl to the garden, and she cries for a rose, and Hester is trying to quiet her, but she's screaming, And then the governor and a few men come out to the garden and Pearl immediately stops crying. Okay, chapter eight, the elf child and the minister. The governor and the two ministers, Wilson and Dimsdale, and the physician, Chillingworth, enter the garden. Remember that Dimsdale is the clergyman who pleaded with Hester to reveal the father when she was on display for the town. Chillingworth, of course, is Hester's husband under a false identity. The narrator tells us that Chillingworth has resided in the town now for almost three years, and he's become a very close companion of Reverend Dimsdale. Because he says he's a physician and Dimsdale's health has been at a constant decline, which they attribute to his self-sacrifice to the labors and duties of being a pastor. The men see Pearl. Hester is partially hidden, so they don't see her at first. They comment on Pearl's clothing and how they've never seen anything like it. Wilson playfully tells Pearl that she looks like a bird and asks if she's an elf or a fairy. And Pearl says she is her mother's child and her name is Pearl. And the men realize who she is, Hester's daughter. Hester steps into the light and the governor gets right down to it. He tells Hester that they've been discussing whether Pearl being in her care is the best for herself and her daughter. He asks why she should be allowed to keep Pearl and what she can teach her. Hester says that she can teach Pearl all the things she's learned from her unfortunate circumstances and from the A she must always wear. The governor tells Mr. Wilson to examine Pearl to see if she's a demon child and if she's being taught the ways of Christian Puritan life. 
And keep in mind, again, Pearl is three years old. Mr. Wilson tries to sit Pearl in his lap, but she pulls away, which offends him because kids usually love him. And then he asks her who made her. And Pearl knows the correct answer to this because after the whole I have no heavenly father thing, Hester taught her the truth that she came from God who sent her to her mother. But Pearl is feisty and a nonconformist. So she answers on 98 that she had not been made at all, but had been plucked by her mother off the bush of wild roses that grew by the prison door. Obviously, she made this up based on the fact that she was crying for a rose three seconds earlier, and also they passed the prison rose bush on the way to the governor's house. So she's just making up a story in her mind, but the men are astonished and terrified. Meanwhile, Hester looks up Chillingworth and sees how much he's changed and how much uglier he'd become. And the governor, in response to Pearl, says that she is dark in her soul and suggests that they take her away, which Hester panics and grabs Pearl. Hester's all alone in this world and she cannot let her one treasure go. So she yells at the men that God gave her this child, that she is her only happiness and also her torture. She tells them she'll die before she lets them take her daughter away. And she suddenly turns to Dimsdale in a moment of panic and she pleads with him to take her side and speak for her. She does this because the pastor knows her better than the other men and she begs him to tell them to let her keep the child. She says on 99, speak for me, thou knowest, for thou hast sympathies which these men lack. Thou knowest what is in my heart and what are a mother's rights and how much the stronger they are when that mother has but her child and the scarlet letter. Dimsdale doesn't hesitate. He immediately steps forward to defend her. And the narrator notes that he's very sickly looking. It says on 99, whether it was his failing health or whatever the cause might be, his large dark eyes had a world of pain in their troubled and melancholy depth. So he steps up. He says that what Hester says is true, that God sent this child to her for a reason. God gave Hester the tools and instinctive knowledge to care for this peculiar child. And God meant Pearl to be a blessing and a curse. On page 100, it says, an ever-recurring agony in the midst of a troubled joy. Dimsdale points out that this was Hester's intent in dressing Pearl like the personification of the Scarlet Letter. His most important point is that the child is keeping Hester from committing further, darker sins. The child is there to remind her to be good and seek righteousness. And on page 100, it says, if she bring the child to heaven, the child will also bring its parent to heaven. After his speech, Chillingworth tells him that he speaks with a strange earnestness and he's smiling slyly at him because he's creepy. And Wilson and the governor agree that the child should be left with Hester as long as she goes to school and church and Dimsdale must examine her over the years. And while they're discussing this, Pearl goes to Dimsdale's side, grabs his hand and rests her cheek on it. Dimsdale hesitates before he kisses her on the forehead and Pearl skips away. Hester is very moved by this because she's never seen Pearl be so tender. And as she skips away, Wilson asks if her toes are touching the ground or if she's flying. And they all agree that she's a curious child. Chillingworth is obviously not happy that Hester won and suggests that the men try again to find out who the father is. Wilson says no, that God will reveal the truth in time. And Hester and Pearl leave the house. As they walk out, Mistress Hibbins who is the governor's sister. She's described as bitter-tempered, and the narrator tells us in this moment that 
a few years after this, she is executed for being a witch. But Mistress Hibbins sees them. She invites Hester to a witch's gathering that night in the forest. And she says she's going to promise herself to the black man. So to Satan, she's like, I'm going to write my name in the black man's book, which is talked about a lot in this book. And she's basically a witch is what they believe. Hester says she can't go. She has to take care of her daughter. But she says that if they had taken Pearl away from her, she would have gladly given herself over to the black man. And the narrator notes that this is proof of Dimsdale's argument that Pearl has kept Hester from darker sins. Chapter 9 is called The Leech. So this chapter is about Roger Chillingworth. His real name, well, his real last name is Prin, but his full name is never stated. Chillingworth comes to the colony, as we know, on the day of Hester's public disgrace. He hides his identity so that he's not included in Hester's disgrace and assumes the identity of Roger Chillingworth. He tells everyone he's a physician and they all believe him because they haven't had much access to medical care and they also have no reason not to believe him. They call him a leech, which in those days is a term for a doctor. He also has a basic knowledge of natural remedies that the Native Americans used because he was held captive by them for so long. So he chooses a friend and a spiritual guide in Reverend Dimsdale. Dimsdale, like we said, he's very young and very highly regarded in the colony. It says on 104, he was considered by his more fervent admirers as a little less than a heavenly ordained apostle. But in his recent years, his health has started to fail. The townspeople are worried about him. He's emaciated, pale. He grows faint easily. He's also alarmed easily. He frequently clutches his chest as if his heart hurts. And people said that if he were to die, it would be because the world was no longer worthy of him. So Dimsdale is humbled by this and he feels unworthy of his position. So because the people loved and worried for Dimsdale so much, they were delighted when Chillingworth decided to befriend him and take care of him. So the townspeople believed that he was sent from heaven to cure Reverend Dimsdale. Even the townspeople who were considered more grounded and wiser believed it was divine providence that Chillingworth came here to help Arthur Dimsdale. So Chillingworth immediately attaches himself to Dimsdale. Dimsdale's fan club, including women, children, and men, and fair dames, like we said, he's kind of handsome, and so all the ladies want him, but they urged Chillingworth to cure him. Dimsdale initially refused his help, saying he didn't need medicine, but he eventually lets Chillingworth take care of him. And the two men become close. They spend almost all of their time together. And Dimsdale is intrigued by Chillingworth because science is so different than religion and he likes learning about it all. The narrator points out that a man with a secret should not become intimate with a physician because the physician will inevitably figure it out. So that's a hint that Dimsdale has a secret. This was Chillingworth's goal. He wanted to go deep into Dimsdale's mind and find out what was troubling him and what was making him physically sick. But the two enjoyed each other's company. They discussed everything, ethics, religion, public affairs, private character. They talked about their personal lives too, but Dimsdale never spoke of any secret he might be keeping. But Chillingworth felt that he was hiding something, mostly because he couldn't diagnose Dimsdale with a bodily disease so he wondered if it was mental or spiritual because as we know, emotions, mental things, spiritual things, they all have an effect on our physical bodies. So he thinks that Dimsdale is hiding something that is making him sick. So 
Dimsdale, like I said, is the catch of the town. Lots of girls want to marry him, but he refused them all. Many hoped he would take a wife so that she could take care of him, but he wouldn't. So when Chillingworth suggested that the two men move in together, the town was thrilled that someone would be able to take care of Dimsdale day and night. And they moved into a home of a widow who had good social rank, and they took separate bedrooms in the house. Dimsdale's room was filled with books and parchment and journals from different spiritual leaders, and his room was decorated with tapestries that depicted the scriptural story of David and Bathsheba. So I'm going to give you a short version of the story of David and Bathsheba from the Bible. So King David of Israel sent his troops to fight to war. He is walking his palace one day and he sees this really hot woman bathing on her roof. It's Bathsheba. The king sends his men to find out who she is, finds out that she's the wife of one of his soldiers, whose name is Uriah. Even though he knows she's married, they have an affair and David gets her pregnant. He's afraid, obviously, that people would find out his sin, so he calls Uriah back from the war to try and cover up the pregnancy, hoping that Uriah and Bathsheba will have sex and he'll think it's his child. This doesn't work because Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife while his men are still fighting as a matter of principle. So with no other choice, David sends Uriah to the front line so he will die, which he does. And David marries Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan visits David, tells him that God knows his sin, a drought covers Israel, and their child dies. So a lot more happens, but that's the gist of it. So <laughs> this is what he has decorating his room, if that gives you a hint into Dimsdale's sin, but I'm not going to outright say it yet. Okay, on the other side of the house is Chillingworth's room. It is set up as a laboratory and he has like potions and medicines and herbs and all that stuff. The townspeople start getting even more concerned for Dimsdale and even more suspicious of Chillingworth. Rumors begin to spread about Chillingworth's past. One man in town says he met Chillingworth in London, but he used a different name that he can't remember now. And there is some speculation that he was involved in a murder that happened in London 30 years earlier. Some people believe that he uses the black arts that he learned from Native American medicine men during his captivity. Even the most practical people in town couldn't doubt that there had been a severe change in Chillingworth over the years. And on 111, it says, especially since his abode with Mr. Dimsdale, at first his expression was calm, meditative, scholar-like. Now there was something ugly and evil in his face. So basically, it's a widespread belief that Dimsdale was haunted by either Satan himself or Satan's emissary in the guise of Roger Chillingworth. Chapter 10. The Leech and His Patient. So this chapter is all about Chillingworth and his devotion to finding out what plagues the Reverend Dimsdale. He devotes all of his time to helping Dimsdale. Dimsdale asks Chillingworth one day about a plant in his laboratory, and Chillingworth says he found it growing out of someone's unmarked grave. And his theory is that the plant grows out of the graves of people who die with secrets or unconfessed sins. He says that can't be so. No power other than God can disclose the secrets that may be buried with a human heart. That's on 114. And then he says that even in death, those unconfessed sins will plague a man until the day when all hidden things shall be revealed. Chillingworth asks why a man would put himself through such misery. Why not just confess right away rather than bury his secret for years? And Dimsdale tells him that sometimes they're afraid and they would rather deceive themselves than confess. Chillingworth says on page 115, they fear to take up the shame that rightfully belongs to them. Dimsdale waves off this conversation because he's nervous and he doesn't want to talk about it. 
Before Chillingworth can press him more on the subject, they hear a little girl laughing and yelling outside their window, and outside their window is the cemetery. Hester and Pearl are walking down the path through the cemetery. Pearl is dancing around on the graves and placing flowers around the scarlet A on her mother's chest. Chillingworth looks disdainfully at the child and calls her an imp, which is a demon or an evil spirit, and Pearl notices the men and throws a flower at Dimsdale, who shrinks from her. And they all look at each other for a minute, and Pearl tells her mother they should leave. She says on 116, or the black man will catch them, like he has already caught hold of the minister. So little insightful Pearl says that the black man has already caught hold of Arthur Dimsdale. Chillingworth comments that Hester is at least free from the guilt of a hidden sin. She has to deal with the outward shame, but she is at least doesn't have the guilt inside of her anymore. Dimsdale says that he saw pain in her face, but he still thinks, he says on 117, he still thinks it must be better for the sufferer to be free to show his pain as this poor woman Hester is than to cover it all up in his heart. Dimsdale asks Chillingworth what he has found out about his own sickness. Chillingworth says he can't figure out what the illness is and asks if there's something he's not telling him. He says on 118, a bodily disease may after all be a symptom of some ailment in the spiritual part. And he tries to get Dimsdale to tell him, he asks him how he's supposed to heal his physical ailments when he doesn't know his spiritual ailments. Dimsdale says he will not speak to an earthly physician about his spiritual problems. Only God can heal him spiritually. And he leaves the room. Chillingworth is pleased to have gotten some information out of him, at least the assumption that there is something hurting him spiritually. Soon after this, Chillingworth sneaks into Dimsdale's room while he's sleeping, pulls back the shirt on his chest, and he rejoices at what he sees. But we don't know what he sees yet. The narrator says that Chillingworth, in this moment of rejoicing, was ugly. He says on 120, had a man seen old Roger Chillingworth at that moment of his ecstasy, he would have no need to ask how Satan comports himself when a precious human soul is lost to heaven and won into his kingdom. So basically, Chillingworth is Satan or his emissary. Okay, that's it for this episode. In the next episode, we will cover the rest of the book and themes. So make sure you go listen to that one. Go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Leave a review if you want, but only if it's good. And I will see you for the next book.